Good morning again. I <laughs> uh, invite you to be turning this first Sunday of Advent to another place in Isaiah, chapter 50. I'll just tell you right now that this Advent season, nothing is going as planned for me in terms of sermon prep. Usually I've thought happily and merrily about uh, many Advent ideas, and I come to one, I'm fully settled on the sermon topic, super happy it's Christmas and everything's falling into place, and not this year. <laughs> um, Maybe if you recall a few weeks ago, I kind of shared a hard-to-hear funny video up here of uh, me trying to figure out what to do for the Christmas Advent series, and those were inspired by true events. <laughs> um, I had some ideas, but none of them felt right or certain, as in this is what I should do. And when I finally settled on what I'm doing, I went to maybe writing a sermon on all of Isaiah 50, to maybe I should make this my Advent series. <laughs> And uh, I settled on this idea taken from some lyrics from a familiar favorite Christmas song, O Holy Night. And the words are, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And it strikes me because, by the grace of God, I want to be thrilled again. I want to be shaken from this ho-humness that 2020 and 2021 has brought us. I want some people to wake up from their slumber and their weariness. I want some weary souls to rejoice. And so here is how vague and unsettled and I don't know-ish your pastor was. I've done something like this before. This is going to be pastor confession time. I literally went to a Bible keyword search and I typed in the word weary. <laughs> and I started looking through passages. Now this is a super spiritual process, right? Uh, don't worry, I, I actually did some praying too. But I, I came across this passage, Isaiah 50. And then to add more to my wonderful all-put-togetherness that I usually maintain, I just wasn't filling the ESV again. <laughs> so you got to love me and my Bibles. And uh, I'll just admit, as hard as it is for me, the Isaiah 50 in the ESV was just kind of clunky, kind of wordy, and I feel like I would be explaining English to you more than the passage than I need to. And so I'm preaching out of a relatively new translation. It's actually very traditional and conservative, and I would say not maybe not as literal as the ESV, but it's called the Berean Study Bible. It's the BSB. And if you like the NIV or the ESV or even the New King James, I think you'll like the BSB if you want to go and find one online. So are you enjoying all my commitments and all my confidence I've had in this whole process. So with that, why don't we stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word together. Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to be reading three long verses, if you're able to stand that long. Um, says, This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Look, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why was no one there when I arrived? Why did no one answer when I called? Is my hand too short to redeem you? Or do I lack the strength to deliver you? Behold, my rebuke dries up the sea. 
I turn the rivers into a desert. The fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens in black and make sackcloth for their covering. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, in all of this searching, wondering, unsettledness that I have, I pray that what I offer in this study time together would be pleasing to you and used by you for your glory and for the good of others. I pray that we would indeed have open hearts and ears to hear your voice, that through your inspired word that we would draw close to you, that we would be obedient to the things you call us, that we would be in awe in what you do. Uh, I ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were listening closely, I just thought of this. You may have said, well, where is the word weary in that? Um, That's not until next week, because I told you I first was going to do Isaiah 50, all of it. Uh, The word weary is actually in verse 4, but we'll hit that next week. What do exiles in Babylon, that is the situation that Isaiah largely speaks into, so what do exiles in Babylon have to do with the Christmas story, with Joseph, with Mary and Jesus? Now, if you, Jim, pointed out for us as we read that wonderful, uplifting passage from Lois and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Exile. So we do have that uh, hint. But also, amid my own sermon prep this week, I remembered Tuesday night, oh yes, I need to send something to Lois for the facing bench. And if you uh, read the facing bench, I don't. she said that you might not get it till Monday if you haven't received it in the mail yet. But I am sending, I'm sending a Advent series I did two years ago. Um, the one on, I call it Reflections of the Father. And we kind of looked at the passages about Joseph and we asked, how does this reflect God the Father? But um, the first passage is, I talked a little bit about genealogies in the Bible. And genealogies in the Bible are a little bit more, I would say, theological than they are genealogical, as we might understand today. They speak to more about the people and what follows about the people than they speak about what we might think of medical person-to-person records. And I'm not saying that they're not factual. They do refer to real people. They represent real family lines. It's just sometimes generations might be skipped. Or a woman might be named as opposed to a man or a woman along with a man in a given generation, because the author is trying to get somewhere theologically. And in Matthew 1, prior to Matthew's telling of the nativity story, in verse 17, he makes he says this in reference in his genealogy. He says, In all then there were fourteen generations from Abraham to David, fourteen uh, from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ, to the Christ. Matthew, the Holy Spirit, has a theological plan. Christ uh, not only truly historically, physically descends from these people that mean more than their names. Abraham, the father of Israel. David, the prime king of Israel. Hence, Matthew's placing not even a a person, but the exile uh, to Babylon, or in Babylon, I mean. Something about the exile in Babylon uh, 
immediately relates to Christ. That something is found in the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, and we're going to find how the incarnation of Christ immediately relates to the exile in Babylon as we go through this. But as we look to Isaiah 50, we find that God gives the depressing verdict. His people have been divorced and sold. He says in verse 1 again, This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I have sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Now again, the context is, is this. Israel is likely in Babylon or exiled. They are deported. Again, it's what uh, Lois read for us. And it's as dramatic as any dramatic forceful removal and enslavement would be for any people. Israel's temple was burnt to the ground. Uh, Israel obviously so tied to Yahweh, it seemed like Yahweh left them. The king's sons were murdered. And that's the last uplifting thing the king got to see before his eyeballs were gouged out from their sockets. Hosts of false prophets were exposed as the liars they were. God was not okay with them. (laughs) Even though they had been telling the people that and really towing the state narrative. It was just dark and weary. And we talked the last two weeks about strangers and pilgrims and, and Jeremiah writing to the exiles in Babylon. This was the context. Strangers and pilgrims, exiles away from their home. And when bad things happen... Because of us, we have a tendency to do a lot of overlooking of our own sins and wonder. We have a tendency to start blaming everybody else but us because uh, sinfully, we want sympathy. It's okay to seek sympathy, but there's also a sinful way to seek sympathy. Selfishly, we want to be the victim. And so, this is what the Lord says. Right? If you want God's verdict on the matter, if you want God's word on the matter, Israel, Judah actually, if you want to know why you're in your predicament, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I have sent her away, or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Now I ran into two interpretations on the passage. One, and I will say probably the more common of interpretations I ran into in most of my sources is that God is asking rhetorical questions with the answers, there is no certificate of divorce and you have no creditors because, God, you haven't divorced us and you didn't sell us. But I don't think that's the case. I was convinced otherwise by two old dead guys, Joseph Benson and Adam Clark, that, well, God's point is not to direct Israel to a certificate of divorce or a creditor that he sold them to, Prophetically speaking and biblically speaking, God's left no qualms or questions on the matter. He has divorced them. He has sold them. If you turn over to Jeremiah 3, and beginning with verse 7, Jeremiah also writing surrounding the context of the coming exile to Babylon. Jeremiah writes in 3.7, I thought that after she had done all these things, in context... God is talking about Israel, the northern kingdom, when it had committed spiritual adultery by idolatry, worshiping other gods, despising Yahweh with the way it acts. 
And God said, even though that she went off sinning, he thought, now God is using a personification here. I don't think God thinks wrongly about things, being all-knowing as he is. Like, oh, I thought this, but I was wrong. He's just saying it in a way we understand. He nevertheless thought that she, faithless Israel, would return to me, but she did not return, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Judah is the southern kingdom and the kingdom that Isaiah has in mind in his passage. Verse 8, she, Judah, saw that because faithless Israel had committed adultery, I gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away. So, now we see that God has within his faculties and knowledge, he knows how to give certificates of divorce to an entire portion of his holy nation, no less. Yet, that unfaithful sister Judah had no fear and prostituted herself as well. Indifferent to her own infidelity, Israel has defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet, in spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than unfaithful Judah. So here's what God is saying in a nutshell. I divorced Israel, the northern kingdom. And so you might say, well, Jerusalem is the southern nation of of Judah. God said he didn't divorce him. But then God says right here in this passage, you know, the one I divorced is proving to be more righteous than Judah. So can God choose to divorce Judah? Over in Jeremiah 7, God says to Jeremiah in verse 29, cut off your hair and throw it away. Raise up a lamentation with the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. The symbol is this, cut your hair and throw it away. The Lord has rejected and forsaken. Now, I I will obviously not lie up here and say he said the word divorce, but it sounds like divorce papers. It sounds like strong words. But it is not God's fault here. It's God's decision And I believe, spiritually speaking, he did it. And when people argue from the Bible in language like this, some who disagree will feel like I'm putting God in the fault position here. But that's the point of Isaiah back here in Isaiah chapter 50. God tells Israel to look at the divorce papers to see the creditors that God, symbolically or spiritually speaking, has sold them to, Babylon, and to discover that, look, says God, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So even though it was a bigger superpower who came and sent Judah into exile, God is saying here, or the exile should actually say here, we have no one to blame but ourselves. That's why we're here. That's why Yahweh has lifted His hand of protection off of His people. We didn't serve Him. We weren't a faithful bride. See, God just didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'll just do a divorce (laughs) arbitrarily without reason. But you actually look through the Old Testament history books and the prophet books, hundreds of years, stop sinning. (laughs) This isn't going to end well. Don't do that. Come back to your husband. And when pleading doesn't help, perhaps judgment will. You know, whenever I've pleaded with my son Calvin not to do something, And I've given him 
multiple opportunities, but it finally ends in a spanking or a timeout or both. Usually the conversation goes like this. Calvin, why did you get a spanking? Calvin, why did you get a timeout? And he realizes now, and his answer is never this anymore, because you spanked me. (laughs) Because you put me in timeout. No, rather, his answer is because I. That's the point. He's the only one to blame for the consequences. Judah wasn't sold for debts. They weren't sold for economical reasons. They weren't given a certificate of divorce arbitrarily because their husband caught a glimpse of a hotter woman and used a provision in Deuteronomy 24 that allowed for loose reasons to husbands divorce his wife. Rather, for their iniquities and transgressions. So, God asks this as we start verse 2 here. Why was no one there when I arrived? Why did no one answer when I called? Now again, God is using a anthropomorphism, say that five times fast, of himself. He knows all things. He's not truly clueless. But he sees the situation as a picture, as an unwelcome guest or a guest not responded to. The, the, the same picture is seen in Revelation at another group of people who call themselves Yahweh worshipers. And he says in a memorable letter, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I even used some art today. See, I put that up for you just this Sunday. No, just, this, this picture we have over here. This isn't a human heart like pastors love to imagine, right? It's a, it's a dead church, a dead Christian community. And God is saying... I'm here, I'm knocking, I'm available. If anyone wants to commune with me, I'm willing. And so to to Judah, sinful, full of transgressions and iniquities, God says, I showed up for you, but nobody greeted me. Now I don't know about you, so I'm not going to pick on you, but I'll pick on me. I've done this so many times. Man, God, you're distant right now. I just can't hear your voice. But then a day comes and a no-brainer happens and I ask, when's the last time I really prayed? Well, I pray all the time. No, really pray. I'm not talking about handing out to-do lists for God or saying the words we say all the time before meals or bedtime, but you know, conversations. When's the last time I read the Scriptures? Well, I read the Bible all the time. I have a daily checklist. I read a chapter a day. No, I'm talking about reading the Word of God, meditating on it, listening for God's voice, praying before, during, and after, and listening. Many times I find this, God is here. He arrived a long time ago. But between my Bible reading, and i got to check my phone, and i got to do this, and i got to do that, and before bedtime I'm just too tired to pray, I'll just go to sleep. I'll tell you this, how would you feel if you came and visited me, and I kept checking my phone? Or I said to you, you know, can you, can we just get this conversation over with? I got other things to do. Or even worse, I fell asleep on you. (laughs) Why was no one there when I arrived? I don't know. While Judah worshipped other gods, I have a feeling that the priests may have still been doing the prescribed sacrifices like they did any other day. To make a contemporary illustration, church went on, the Bibles were out. People may have been more or less faithful to check off their daily Bible reading. I read through Malachi on my own time lately, and look what God said 
in Malachi uh, 1.10. Oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle useless fires on my altar. I take no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Like, God's not stupid, (laughs) nor is He a machine. Like, He's not going to say, Oh, I don't like their sins, but they're carrying on with the sacrifices that I've prescribed. I'm happy. God uses this imagery in Malachi. You don't treat other people like this. I think He opens up with Malachi of, Whenever the governor or the ruler of your land comes, are you going to give them the same food you give me? Because your food is worthless. They were bringing in ugly, diseased calves. Well, we're not going to eat it, so we'll just give it to God. God says, you do me a better favor by just closing it down altogether so I don't have to smell your stinky hypocrisy. Right? Well, what about this book back in Isaiah? Why did no one answer when I called? Huh. See, usually we're the ones saying, I can't hear you, God. But I wonder if he's been speaking loud and clear. And it's not that God has a muteness about him. We just have a deafness about us. Or if we're honest, it's like my son, I've discovered selective hearing. See, I say say this to Calvin also frequently. Don't act surprised or offended that you're experiencing these consequences. You, You knew better. And as I said already, it's not like Judah here should be dumbfounded or just aghast at things. Why are we getting spanked? They heard all the prophets. Don't do that. Stop worshiping other gods. Don't forsake Yahweh. But they just didn't listen. God's been speaking. I have a challenge for you if you feel like God's not close to you right now. If you're thinking, He's not talking to me. What if He is, but you're just not listening? Because he's addressing something you don't want addressed. See, God's not one of those superficial friends who lets you just flout the the nasty rotting elephant in the living room taking up space. God's one of those non-21st century friends who doesn't have this virtue of tolerance and acceptance. No, rather he wants change. But it's a good thing he wants change because he has the ability to change you. And that's the point of our final thought here today is that we have a Redeemer. If only we had sung hymns to go with that theme. And there was even a brief foreshadow in God's judgment when they had nobody to blame. Remember what he said up here in verse 1. Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Look, you were sold for your iniquities. Selling into slavery... That is an economical imagery of the day wherein if parents couldn't pay off debts, sometimes they'd sell their children until the year of Jubilee when they'd receive them back. Now, some of you parents are saying, man, if that had been reinstated when I was... Or, if they could be bought back by a redeemer. That's actually what happened in the book of Ruth, of course, a widowed family where Boaz was their redeemer. He bought them in the property of Naomi's husband. God asks in the middle of verse 2 here, Is my hand too short to redeem you, or do I lack the strength to deliver you? If you have a Bible, circle that too short. We're going to come back to that. Is my hand too short to redeem you? But we hear the economic term and the title throughout Scripture that God is a redeemer, and no matter how far of a pit 
Judah has dug themselves in, running off on their husband, being sold, God still asks, basically, am I kind of powerless as far as this is concerned? It continues to play off the questions he had just asked them. Why was no one there when I arrived? Why did no one answer when I called? As in, I kind of excel at this redeeming and protecting and healing and flourishing stuff. That's why it makes no sense if you or I say, God, I can't hear you to a God who is actually loud and clear. He just wants to talk about stuff we don't want him to. (laughs) Why? Well, do we like our sins that much? Well, no, Kevin, but it's just that it's a big pile of sin that that what? That God can't fix? Is that ball of wax beyond his resources? Is he just lost and dumbfounded as you are? Wow, I don't know what you did there, bud, but I'm not going near that. (laughs) Does God lack the strength to deliver Judah here? I mean, hear that. Try to emotionally go there. Judah, who would likely recall these words of Isaiah, many believe Isaiah obviously wrote long before the, the exile, but would recall the words of Isaiah as they sat on the foreign dirt of Babylon, knowing full well that their hometowns are ruined and their temple is destroyed. But here is God asking, do I lack the strength to deliver you? Like, is there a picture of more desolate where God can say, what are you worried about? I like uh, space movies. And I'm always just dumbfounded or taken back by the sheer horror it must have been for the Apollo 13 astronauts. Just think about, talk about exiles. Not only are they far away from home, but they're in the middle of a shuttle literally over 200,000 miles away. I had to look that up. But the moon is over 200,000 miles away from Earth. And beyond being away from, you know, just familiar dirt, they're away from oxygen away from the very atmosphere that best sustains them to live and breathe. They're in a falling apart shuttle that's barely big enough for the three men to move around. It's like a time bomb waiting to go off. Like, we have no thrusters to get home. And it's as if God shows up in the middle of that. What are you worried about? (laughs) Do I lack the strength to deliver you? Apparently not, because God saw that crew back home. God reminds Judah here of past deliverance. He says, Behold, my rebuke dries up the sea. I turn the rivers into a desert. The fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens in black and make sackcloth further covering. A few things going on here. Uh, first, both in, in, in Jewish culture and ancient Near East thinking, The sea, the water, the ocean was a symbol for the forces of chaos. Bad or evil or dark forces. So God is saying that by His voice, which His voice is a theme throughout this chapter I'll probably talk more about next week. You know, this is what the Lord says, or why did no one answer when I call? Or we'll talk about next week in verse 4 that He sustains the weary with His word. Well, here God says that all He needs to do is rebuke the sea. the symbol of forces in chaos, and it dries up. But all of these images also take us back to the Exodus. Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Or the plagues, the fish rotting for lack of water and dying of thirst. 
In the Exodus, the plagues, the rivers turned to blood, not water, and the fish rotted. Or the heavens in black, the plague of darkness. Or make sackcloth for their covering. Sackcloth is what mourners wear, such as the dark night when the angel of death slayed the firstborns, causing the Egypt to mourn. Now, of course, this is imagery of the Redeemer. The one who redeemed Israel from Egypt. That's what uh, Jude calls the Lord. One ancient manuscript says in, it is Jesus in Jude, verse 5. I want to remind you that Jesus had delivered or redeemed his people out of the land of Egypt. The death of the firstborn, the blood, these are all images that, of course, point us to Jesus. You know, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. <laughs> and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's a good song. We should sing it. Yes, there are, are, there are verses leading to Jesus. In fact, the very next verse. Verse 4, the prophetic figure in Isaiah, the servant will begin speaking. Uh, this is the same servant who is the suffering servant. Jesus on the cross, only a few chapters later in 52 and 53. The same servant that we're told in Matthew 12, 17-21, who is fulfilled by Jesus. So this is definitely leaning into Jesus, who is the Redeemer and can redeem the divorced and sold Jews, weary in Babylon. But, there is a hint, a slight hint, just a word connection, and I'm one of those weird fundamentalists that believe every word of God is chosen and never placed here by mistake. Remember those words I chose you to circle. Is my hand too short to redeem you? Now there's a nativity connection right there. And you're like, duh, I see that, Kevin. Say no more. Well, let me walk you through this, actually. As I said, redemption was particularly an economic feat. To redeem someone, to pay someone's ransom. This too short was a Jewish idiom wherein God is basically saying, do I have a not, a, not enough resources, not enough money to buy you back? In fact, over in Leviticus 12, verse 8, we read of some of the rules where this exact phrase is used, the shorthand. It's used, uh, it's not just seen in most translations in, in Leviticus 12, because again, it's a Jewish idiom that we at first would not pick up on. The only thing I can think of is people today might say, that cheapskate, he shorthanded me. In Leviticus 12, it's talking about the purification of a woman after she has a baby. And the Bible would say in Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8, When the days of her purification are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon, or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And the priest will present them before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she will be ceremonially cleansed from her flow of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or a female. But if she cannot afford, and that's right there, the literal words, I don't know if there's any, maybe like Young's literal translation, the literal words here would say, if her hand is unable to reach for, or if that if she be short-handed, it's the same words back in Isaiah 50, Concerning a lamb, she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Seems like we know a passage in the New Testament where a couple couldn't afford a lamb, so they purchased two turtle doves 
as the mother did this ceremony after her purification. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 tells us, of course, that this is what Joseph and Mary brought to the temple with Jesus when one, then one man named Simeon prophesied using lots of language and pictures from Isaiah about Jesus that indeed he is the prophesied about one, the consolation of Israel. We covered just three verses, and like I mentioned, I originally intended to do all of chapter 50, but as I started writing and study, I just couldn't speed up or pass over everything quickly. And what we get in these three verses is a snapshot, I believe, of the weary world. The weary world. Judah, in particular, is suffering being exiled to Babylon, but the point that God makes is you know, very comforting. Hey, it's really your fault where you are. <laughs> right? God doesn't seem to play the victim game that many of us in our world want to play. Well, I am where I am because the president, the government, or my job. And it seems like the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, would have the audacity because your sin. <laughs> Think about that. Now, I'm not denying bad things happen unrelated to our own personal blame. Of course it does, but whether it be outside our personal blame or we are totally to blame, I wonder if today we need to be reminded that there is a Redeemer. A Redeemer who doesn't have limited resources. He doesn't have so much strength, but beyond that, we're on our own. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He reminds the Israelites under the strong arm of Babylon, you know, this isn't my first go-around. <laughs> Remember when I delivered Israel out from underneath that other superpower, Egypt? You know, I've been here before. And the promise of the Redeemer is this. He's come in the person, power, and work of Jesus to deliver or to redeem the human race from the power of sin. Born to set thy people free. Are you living under the strong arm of Babylon right now? I not only wonder, but I know I've been there. Sometimes we can be Christian, but somehow still find ourselves in Babylon. We can say, I've been forgiven, I've been set free, but then for some reason we, we live enslaved to sins. We live as if there is no Redeemer. We go through the motions like Israel went through the motions, and God's knocking on the door of a dead Christian saying, I'm here. <laughs> Answer, let's dine together. And if you're in Babylon this morning, I want to make that same invitation. There is a Redeemer. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, sometimes we, I don't know, um, I think the term has been used as a Christian atheist. We claim all the stuff, we do all the things, but we live as you don't exist. Father, we pray that we would be trusting in the fact that we can experience victory over our sins. Father, that you never leave us where you found us, that you never give us sins to weigh us down and to, fa to feel shame and guilt and vicious cycles of it. Father, maybe we don't find ourselves in personal sin, but those around us are going through sin. And it weighs on us because they're our loved ones. And if that's the case, Father, there is still a Redeemer. 
Father, that, that wherever we're at, wherever our friends are at, wherever our spheres of influences are at, that we can trust in a redeeming God. Father, that um, you are knocking on the doors of hearts. Please give people the grace and the obedience to respond. Give us the obedience to respond. Help us to trust in your redeeming hand. Father, this Advent season, thank you for the hope and promise of a Redeemer. Who we not, only, not only do we look forward to his second coming, but he already has come. And what a great blessing that is for us to be in Christ Jesus and experience that redemption. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.